Hello and welcome to the Real Rice Podcast, your intro into famous Asian cinema under the modern lens of Asian Canadians. I'm your host, Raymond, and joining me are my fellow co-hosts, Brian. Hey. And Jackie. Sub lovely people. For this episode, we'll be reviewing the 2016 Korean erotic psychological thriller film, The Handmaiden. During the 1930 Japanese occupation of Korea, Japanese settlements were commonplace throughout the country. Suk Hee, a young Korean girl, is hired as a handmaiden to a young Japanese heiress, Hideko who lives a lonely life on a large countryside estate with her eccentric uncle, Kozuki. Little do they know, Suki is in fact a pickpocket conspiring with a con man posing as a Japanese count to seduce the young heiress, rob her inheritance, and commit her to an insane asylum. The plan seemed perfect until newfound emotions and personal entanglement begin to blossom. Before getting into our review, let's start with some info about the movie and general consensus. Released in 2016, The Handmaiden was directed by Korean auteur filmmaker Park Chan-wook, the film stars Kim Tae-ri as Suki, Kim Mi-hee as Lady Hideko, Ha Jung-woo as Count Fujiwara, and Cho Jin-woo as Uncle Kozuki as its four chancel cast. Loosely based off the 2002 British novel Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, the film recontextualized the setting from the Victorian era to the Japanese occupation of Korea. The film garnered a long list of awards and accolades. Some of the awards that stood out to us were the BAFTA Awards, Best Film Not in English, 2018, Asian Film Awards, Best Newcomer for Kim Tyree, 2017, and the Saturn Awards, Best International Film, 2017. Professional film critic Justin Chang of the LA Times had this to say. The Handmaiden gradually reveals itself as a drama of physical, sexual, and national freedom. It's a film whose identity of liberation begins with the suggestive licking of a light pop, amongst other things, but quickly advances with extraordinary cutting ingenuity into triumphant expression of romantic and political independence. Justin Chang, LA Times, 2016. The general consensus online has been 8.2 out of 10 on IMDb, 95% critic and 91% audience on Rotten Tomatoes, 84% critic and 8.6 audience score on Metacritic. For our consensus, we landed around an 8.3 out of 10. We all agreed that the director's vision was executed perfectly and is a masterpiece. The dialogue, cinematography, and plot points are all well thought out and captivating to watch. One small fuss is due to limited budget, there were a lack of different locations, and watching the same set over and over again became a bit fatiguing. Some of us also felt that, for being a psychological thriller, it didn't hook us in like other movies in the same genre, and it needed a lot more focus to enjoy the film. We recommend this movie to those who like heists or mysteries, where there are multiple twists and turns up until the end. Warning, this film has explicit depictions of sexuality, nudity, and violence. This film is not family-friendly and requires an open and progressive mind. Your description is advised. So pause the podcast right now if you want to be filled in on the discussion. As always, we're going to start off with the story. All right, without the way, let's get to the discussion. Keep in mind, this will be a spoiler-filled review. Yeah, so for me, the movie was definitely a solid 9 out of 10. I personally really enjoyed it. I thought the plot and narrative was really good. Personally, I think my only... I guess nitpick with it is it wasn't really a thinking movie more so it's just a drama and we're just here on the ride to see how it all plays out very heist like movie I would say with a lot of twists and turns I'm a big fan of the genre and you know overall just a very solid movie and I I think it's a good watch for everyone 
Yeah, so I thought that this was a very like interesting movie. Just from the cinematography, how it's kind of gloomy, but then it's also very, very like put together. It's like it's it's very similar to what the director has made in the past. I can't remember correctly, but I think he either directed or he was involved in uh, Miss Vengeance and also Old Boy, which kind of has the same like vibe as The Handmaiden. So I thought, you know, it, that I really liked because I was a really big fan of old boy so for me like it's a solid 8 out of 10 um my only i guess concern or I'm, I'm being a bit nitpicky about the movie is the fact that like it's just in terms of setting um sometimes it got a bit boring because it was the same three or four locations but like it makes sense with a eight million dollar budget they can only do so much but it, they definitely made up for it with the really good acting and just the drama and the story in general yeah, just like echo the general consensus in this room right now. It's like this film is just a masterclass. It's well executed in pretty much every front down to the art direction, set pieces, costumes, acting all superb. I expect no less from this director. I, I do believe that he was involved pretty heavily in the Vengeance trilogy and Old Boy, something we've talked about before. I would also give it rounded to eight, maybe eight and a half. Um, something that I perceived didn't really resonate with was the fact that this is supposed to be a really psychological, dialogue-heavy kind of film. It is that. It, it very much is that. It's got so much of this abstract feel to it as well. But unlike other movies with this kind of like whole caper-esque or like twist-and-turning kind of plot, it didn't really hook me at any point. I just kind of sat there and watched it. Oh, yeah, this is happening. Oh, cool, that's happening. And then at no point, I was like, oh my god, that's insane. I'm, I'm so invested or surprised. I was just kind of along for the ride, and I had a pleasant time, don't get me wrong. Just never had that one moment. I went like, oh my god, this is incredible. A good film, but something about it just kind of lacked that level that pushed it above good to great. Yeah, I think um, even though there was a small budget, I thought the costumes that set were very elaborate. I loved the costume, kind of the play between like Victorian era and like this more traditional Eastern style clothes. So we're talking about like the maids, the suits, um, but also, you know, you had the traditional side of the house. And even though the, it was one set, I thought it was really cool how they kind of laid out the mansion and it looked very elaborate. So even though, yeah, we only saw the same three, four parts of the mansion, I think they're still really interesting. One thing I would say though, is um, they had great shots of how the mansion is like, very good uh, angles to show how big the mansion is, or but also very close-up shots to some of the actors to just really like show their emotions. Yeah, I noticed a lot of shots tend to linger for atmosphere effect, but whenever they do that, the shot is so beautifully composed. It's like looking into like a high-quality photograph or like some kind of coffee table book of the environment, the house, or like just how the framing of the characters are to the relative environment. It just came across as a very sophisticated and entrancing movie just to look at visually, even when I wasn't fully attentive to the plot i just couldn't look away just from the beauty of the scenes and on top of that i feel like with the both japanese and korean going on simultaneously like that's i think that's so much work and i you know i i can't imagine each of these actors having to learn the other language just to speak it with other accent yeah i heard that the for the production of this film they actually had japanese coaches for each actor to get the whole like dialect and like just to make it sound as fluid and natural as possible it's just really impressive whenever they go above and beyond and just do something like that that's really interesting because i did also notice the change of languages in the movie um it just sucks that i can't appreciate as much because korean japanese to me like 
I can kind of tell the distinct difference, but when when the characters change back and forth so often, sometimes it's really hard for me to like pick up on it as an English speaker. But I I do like appreciate the little details that they did put in the movie. Yeah, as someone who speaks rudimentary Japanese, I just know when they're not speaking Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I think at some point I was watching. Wait, something's happened. Something's different. I don't. What? Well, they're speaking. They're switching languages. Which one is this? Ah. Uh. <laughs> Great work by the actors just to be able to nail each line. In terms of plot, though, um, I also really like how it's divided up into three acts. I know it came from the book uh, Fingersmith of how it was divided. But I really like how it was filmed, where each part, in some sense, kind of could have ended there, right? Like, Act 1, when uh, Suki was, you know, double-crossed, quote-unquote, and put into this asylum. Like, that, that could have been the end of the movie, you know? Like, a- end of Act 1. Or um, Act 2, maybe not so much, but it could be, like, Act 2, he w- she will come back for her, and that will be the end of the movie. So it's really nice, kind of, like, having this three-act part, and at any time you can pause... And take a break, come back. Yeah, just to add on that, when with like these thriller caper mystery films, it's always like when there was a big twist, you have to kind of follow up with like the resolution or the build up to that twist where that the vibe between part one and two come. But in most movies, I noticed that the explanation of like how that twist came to be is always really rushed or like ham fisted. But by dividing it into two acts, we kind of get a bit of that shock value as well as the whole context that led up to that point. So we kind of get like the twist at both sides, but also perfectly laid out. We all hit the same conclusions without like any misdirects or misconceptions or just not understanding what's happening. One thing I have is that the third part, the resolution and the remaining, I don't know, 30-ish minutes of the film, it kind of, I feel like it kind of wraps a bow and ties everything up a little too nicely. Like everything's been resolved. That's fantastic. And like nothing's lingering, but kind of ends on a bit too much of a happy note for me like it's a little bit too schmaltzy almost at some points like everyone's happy and the bad guy got punished hooray well i want to say that i personally don't think fujiwara deserved the ending he did like sure he's a con man and sure he wouldn't have the best of intentions but you think about it like him and haidako actually thought of the plans together and he he just got crossed and you know like too bad you follow the plan, now you're going to get killed for it. So I think, like, poor guy, like, sure, he wasn't the greatest person, but I don't think he was, quote-unquote, evil like his uncle. Yeah, I definitely agree with Brian in terms of Fujiwara's demise. I I felt like he really didn't deserve it. Like, he was actually a pretty, like, likable guy, to be honest, uh, besides the fact that he was plotting to steal the whole inheritance and trying to frame the girl thing and also trying to rape lady Hideyoki. Yeah, not a bad guy. Though, I mean, right? okay, you know what? Actually, he's he's pretty bad now I think about it. But he's very charming. I don't think he deserved, like, the demise that he did. But if you think about it, though, like, the whole cast, none of them are actually good people, right? No, like, no of course not. They're all, they're all full in different ways. Like, no one here is, like, strictly morally good. They're all, like, gray <laughs> to evil in yeah. some spectrum. Exactly. Yeah. They're all shitty people if you think about it. Like one, one's a huge pervert like the uncle, right? Who's also trying to steal the inheritance of his niece. niece. Yeah. And then one's a pickpocketer. The, the, the other one uh, is a total fraud and a swindler. And, and the lady Hideoki... How do you pronounce? Hideko? Yeah, Hideko. And, and lady Hideko... Actually, well... She's now, like a borderline sociopath. You yeah, know. I would say. Yeah, he. Yeah, she's a 
She's like pretty cold, cruel, calculating. Cold, cruel, calculating. I I guess mentally she's kind of evil, but like she hasn't, she doesn't really do that many evil things. But I guess she's more of a the manipulative type. Yeah, like at the third part where the cat was like, "Hey, I kind of want to marry you for real." I was, I was kind of on board with like, "Yeah, you're cold and calculating. You're a huge asshole who tricks people." It kind of, kind of works out, you know. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like Fujiwara, like at the end, he's like, "Oh, actually, I kind of like you. You know, I think you're a great person." And, uh, yeah, he gets murdered for that. <laughs> well, he gets his fingers cut off. He, he definitely died, though. Well, he, he, he orchestrated his own death. He smoked the cigarette smoke, which suffocated them. You know, he, mean, he, was, he died on his own terms, given his circumstances. he knew he was gonna just die there on the spot, like, after getting his fingers chopped off. So he wanted to take the old man down with him, which yeah. is what he get. Well, I, feel, I feel like his death was more of a plot device, to be honest. It's more like a catharsis for how this character ends. Exactly. Yeah, just have a conclusion for him. Yeah, like, that's how kind of, like, everything's kind of wrapped up nicely. Like, oh, the two worst people in the film? Well, guess what? They're dead. They died together. And the, our two heroines? Guess what? They're together, too. Everything's nicely packed together. I guess I disagree with you. I think having it nice and tied up is, is good. It makes me know, oh, this is the ending of the movie. There is no sequel. Like, I think a lot of modern-day movies purposely don't tie up loose ends just to, like have the possibility of a sequel. So, uh, I mean, I guess, like, in a more cynical approach, but I meant, like, sometimes a movie can just have things linger for the people to discuss or just talk about. It doesn't always have to be sequel bait. Like, they could have easily just had the two uh, lead actresses leave the movie, like, have their good ending, and then show, like, Fujiwara just, like, going, ah, shit, what do I do now? And has, like, a get depressed or something, or maybe the uncle's, like, just gets really angry and just, like, sees all his work go away and just commits suicide. Like, it could just leave things not fully addressed. You know, in a story, in life even, like, not everything gets a resolution, and then there's nothing wrong with having something linger or left out, but this just kind of decided to, like, let's have everything resolved. Not a detriment to the film, but just something I personally not a huge fan of. Yeah, I can totally see where Raymond's coming from. I mean, like, a lot of a lot of directors do that, just kind of keep it open-ended. So, like, one thing, you know, to open up the possibility to a sequel and, you know, to give the audience a their own interpretation, right? Also to, I don't want to say lazy, but it's kind of like, you know what, I'll let you make up the ending so that, you know, one, you might like it more, and two, I don't want to offend anybody yeah. by doing that. The exercise is left to the reader, or the watcher in this case. Exactly, you know, the book, like, what do you think about it? How do you think it ends? You know, nothing <laughs> wrong with that. I, can't, I guess I don't like it. Like, I've seen some movies where it's just left, you know, like, unresolved, right, on purpose. And it's kind of like, you decide what kind of ending you think this movie ends. And I'm like, I, if, if I'm here to observe, I'm not here to, you know, decide on the ending. I want to see what you, as a creative director, think should end but i understand their appeals and of course there's some movies i love the open-endedness but i think at least personally the handmaiden i think it's good that ended nice and wrapped yeah it's just like i feel like coming off our last episode burning where there was so much ambiguity and just a lot like interpretations for the audience i kind of wanted a bit of that in this film which might be asking a bit too much because that's not what this film wants to be but just having a little bit of like ambiguity a little bit of gray a little bit of open interpretation really would have helped sell some of the things going on, in my opinion. I mean, it's to each their own. I think it really depends on execution. I think some movies are better left open-ended and others, you know, nice and wrapped. And I think, you know, some people prefer one over the other. Yeah. I just want to bring attention to, like, the uncle. 
I feel like he's a really, really interesting character, just in terms of like what he is and what he encompasses. Like, if you think about it, he's a Korean guy that betrayed his country to the Japanese, and he got a like a gold mine exchange, and then he, with that wealth, he used it to collect books, right, and other stuff, and then he would then sell these erotic books to other people for more money. But then he would sell the fake version of it that was written out by the swindler. So he, he's making money through that, and he's got money from the landmine, and he's hosting like auctions and stuff. He even has a chamber of all these torture devices, and like, on top of that, his collection of books. And then he's, he, he's also a very abusive person, just mentally and also like physically to like the people around him. In the movie, I think they said that what had happened was that his wife actually hung himself because of the torture that he placed upon her for trying to run away. Wait, was it his wife? I don't think it was his wife. It was... It's kind of hard to tell because I feel like there was a big push about talking about aunts and wives and the relationship between Lady Hidako and her uncle. It's just like, I, I couldn't really tell if that was her aunt or... I thought it was like his wife? sister. Was his sister? I'm not fully sure. Oh like, I thought it was his wife and, like, Lady Hidako is there, is her daughter, right? And then that's why he's the uncle. But I might be wrong. I, yeah, I feel like this is one of the things that we should have all paid attention to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but to follow you on your point, the rich people, I wonder if, like, there's a modern equivalent. It's like rich people seeks much extremes just to, like, quote-unquote, get off or do things. I think now in 2021, we see all this like space race between billionaires of trying to go to space. Do they just fly and invent random things because this is nothing else better to do? I'm surprised you went with that modern day equivalent take where you could have just talked about the Me Too movement or Harvey Weinstein because it's still abuse of women and like yeah. their performances and like this culture of like uh, not raising. The term is like, help me out here. I, I don't know. I don't know the term. It's not raising. It's like to to cultivate a person to be something very specific. Um, oh, 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 I know what a word you're looking for. It's um, grooming. Yeah, exactly. It feels like a lot of grooming going on, especially with uh, Lady Hiko learning how to read Japanese specifically to read erotic literature to a bunch of rich Japanese aristocrats. It feels a lot like you know young actresses going into that casting couch with Harvey Weinstein or whoever, and then have a career out of it. <laughs> Feels similar in my opinion, but I'm yeah. surprised you went those space race mode. Okay, okay, look, I, when I think of billionaires, I think of, you know, Jeff Bezos, whatever. I mean, I guess Jeff Bezos isn't that good a person. She had a whole, he had this whole affair with this lady. But I think the reason that Brian brought up the whole space race thing is has to do with the recency of the events. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I think this hedge fund or a finance billionaire guy basically paid 28 or 30 million dollars those and then believe it or not he just pulled out the craziest power move and said that he couldn't attend because he, because of whatever reason probably some meeting with some client and in his place uh, as a proxy of him he's sending his son to go with jeff that's a power move <laughs> yeah i heard about that i was like oh yeah you know i don't want to go on this untested rocket that could kill me i'll put my son on it it's probably I mean, fine it's it's kind of weird, right? Like, to them, it's like, oh, yeah, blowing 30 million is like us blowing $30 or something. Like, it's it's, it's not cheap, right? It must be nice to be rich and powerful. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Someday, someday, my guy. Yeah, this podcast, right? Everyone, <laughs> please subscribe and share it with your friends. Yeah, please subscribe to our future Patreon. <laughs> Anyways, back back to the movie. Um, yeah, but it's just kind of interesting, right? Like, I would imagine if I was that rich, wouldn't you just hire, like, high-class prostitute? Like, why go through this whole weird erotic reading or am i just like too poor to understand or maybe this is just a political kind of thing like you're in a large japanese estate in korea who would you hire to read japanese in the area but i'm saying like to get off wouldn't you just hire some like very beautiful like korean woman or whatever yeah but sometimes you know imagination is hotter than reality you know what, I would, uh, yeah, I kind of agree with Raymond. I feel like you might be so desensitized from real sex if that's even possible. I mean, did you see what they were reading? My god, that's hot. Can't retreat that in real life. Like with the puppet and the asphyxiation and the tentacles. And... Is, is this, so those rich people basically wanted hentai. You know, hentai back then was a rare commodity. It's only for the elite, really. Sometimes the build-up to something great is better than the grift. Yeah, probably. Yeah. You know, um, funny thing, it's like, you know, like, just technological advances, like, for example, the modern toilet was, like, a luxury back in the past, or, like, pineapples was a luxury item, and now you can just buy it at a grocery store for, like, what, five bucks? It's, like, has porn also gotten to that point where, like, it used to be, like, hentai was, like, for the elite, and now it's for the working class. Yeah, I think so. The next time you turn on, you know, Google Chrome Incognito Mode, think about the historical context of watching porn. Like, hundreds ago, you couldn't do this for actually, a lot of reasons, actually. Actually, funny thing. So, you know, YouTube or, like, the modern video streaming platform, the technology of it originated from porn. If it wasn't for porn, we wouldn't have the technology advance. I mean, in yeah, video streaming. I think I've heard about that. Like, wasn't wasn't photography kind of created because of that, and then that led to videography, and then you know I that mean, was also used for porn. Have you guys heard that classic Avenue Q song? The internet is for porn. <laughs> A lot of truth to it. I, I, I mean, I think I've heard something like that. I can believe it. Yeah. To be honest, yeah. I think, I think for example, um, you know, like how YouTube now has like. You hover a video, it'll, like, play snippets of it. Oh, yeah. That's, like, it came from porn first. Man, Pornhub is revolutionizing the industry. <laughs> and it's all thanks to these erotic readings from back in the Victorian era. Actually, speaking of erotic readings, I tried Googling and researching about it, but I couldn't find any information if this is a real thing in the past, or is this just, like, a plot device to kind of show how sadistic, you know, the uncle is. I'm willing to believe it's real because, you know, back then, like the early 1900s, it's very like a conservative kind of environment. Even if it did exist, it would have been like very underground and any record of it would have been destroyed by the church or seized or whatever. So I, I'm willing to believe it exists, but don't quote me on that. I just, you know, it makes sense to me. I mean, if you're that rich, you could probably just say, tell the church, like, just bribe them off, right? Men of clergy taking bribes? You're insane. Oh, I think uh, men of clergy has... Uh experienced some of these uh sins too in the recent years <laughs> yeah um sorry podcaster podcast listener we live in a very terrible world with a lot of terrible things happening done by terrible men terrible powerful men which is kind of looping back to the movie with the whole themes of just grooming this girl and whatnot yeah terrible 
people do terrible things. And I wonder, is is power and wealth corrupting of people? What do you guys think? I think I think it definitely can corrupt people, but I I feel like removing all the filters of who they really are kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's like a test of your character. Once you give someone such power and money, it kind of shows shows you their true colors. I don't believe it corrupts, but it kind of just accentuate what was already there. For the character of the uncle, he was he's Korean born, and but then when he was given the option of power and money, he just turned coded. Like it didn't matter, right? He, want, he wants to join the winning side, which was Japan at the time, so it didn't matter. He was always going to be a turncoat, just depend on the context. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I don't think it necessarily changes people, but it kind of exacerbates all the bad qualities that were there, right? Because now you can actually afford your vices. I read somewhere how you know when you give you know, someone who's, like, poor or middle-class money, like, extra money breathing room, it's not like they spend it all on booze, right? They usually spend it on, you know, necessity life items, but you give more money to the rich than they just, you know, spend on vices or unneeded things. So I, I kind of agree with Ryan, but I also need to disagree, too, because I've also seen, like, literatures of, like, basically... Like, should you give everybody a lot of money? That, that was the topic of the article. That you give someone who's like regardless of like what class you're in but but generally has to do with like the more this is not to discriminate against one who's not very smart and has very low willpower and you give them a lot of money what would they do they might just end up spending it on me productive and it could just lead to many detrimental things not saying that they are are but it's a possibility I also read an article along those lines, but I kind of examined to the why of that aspect, as well as the misconceptions. It's one of those things where you've been homeless for X years, people shit on you, you don't get any respect, your life is in constant turmoil, you're sick, you can't afford a doctor or medicine, no one will want to talk to you, you just feel miserable all the time. What's the one thing that's like instant gratification that you can afford when you have some money? Drugs, alcohol, booze. Like, I understand that the whole perception is that these people are lazy because they do drugs and booze but it's more so about these people do drugs and booze because society doesn't give them a break or they're just in a really tough spot and they don't have the mental fortitude or the support structure to do any better so they'll just destroy themselves because that's all they have and that's all they know i don't think it's a moral failing as much as a societal failing um i agree as well because if you think about like those lottery winners and people talk about if you win the lottery, your life is more likely to be worse than it before because of just so many issues. Um, it's very possible that people just don't understand what to do when you have so much money. And they say when you win the lottery, you should probably like hire financial advisors. If they're first thing, divide them up, put them in a trust fund, and just have a steady passive income for the rest of your life. It's funny you mentioned that, Brian, because I, I already, like, I've run the simulation in my head so many times. Like, if I were to win the lottery, what would I do? If this, this is what I would do, okay, step by step. I would literally, okay, if I win it, and obviously this is going to be, like, public information too. <laughs> I'll probably shave my head. Shave, like, I shave my head or, like, do something to, like, like not wear glasses or wear glasses that day to collect money. And then right after I collect the money, I'll probably do something. I'll probably grow my hair out, probably not wear my glasses anymore. I might even change my name just to kind of hide from people that will come after me if they find out I'm rich. I don't know. Or, or, you know, there's even one case I read the other day where this lottery winner actually put a garbage bag on his head. 
like just for the photo and like what Brian said like I would take that money and I would probably go to a wealth management firm and have them manage my money and just live off of the passive income and like travel the world or something yeah I think there's a lot of cases of people who are lottery winners they just wear a disguise to pick up the money and then this way like it's anonymous no one will know or chase them down or try to rob them because there was this one case, I believe, in Australia where they published the name of the lottery winner of one of the biggest lotteries of the time, and then someone went to that person's house and murdered his family because he wanted the money. So ever since stuff like that happened, I've, al- I've always been a firm believer, like, this, the winners should always be anonymous. Don't take the photos, you know, don't publish their names, obviously. Uh, just let them do what they do with it and don't go chasing them down because that's just asking for disaster. But to counter that, I think Lotto, sorry, Lotto corporations want photo of the winners because by doing so, they can sell this hope and dream and get more income on lottery tickets, right? If everybody is anonymous every time they win, you might think, is this even real? Like, do we even have real winners, right? You just believe the system has real winners. Wow, it just sounds like the lottery is a scam that perpetuates itself. <laughs> I mean, they always say lottery tickets are the tax on the poor. Yeah. Not that I don't buy lottery tickets. I mean, you know, once in a while. Yeah, like the last time the Max Million, was it the Lotto Max had the highest jackpot in history or something? I bought $20. Did you win anything, Brian? No. (laughs) Damn. Statistically speaking, the answer would have been no. (laughs) What if it was yes, though? Like, oh my god. Oh yeah, you didn't know? I won like 70 million dollars. Well, that explains a lot. <laughs> I still think the safest thing to do country, honestly. Mm. Go ghost. Go ghost. Uh, I, and then it, come back in like 5-10 years. I think if I had 70 million dollars, I'd probably spend it on like... If I put all the wealth into a fund where I cannot touch it, like at all, and then... Uh, but before that, I take everything and pay off all my loans, like my mortgage or whatever, right? So yeah. like you say you can't touch it, do you mean like you're going to put it so you can touch it, but you're still getting passive income type of thing? Yeah, like I want something like the wealth management, like I do like physically go in and like sign a bunch of documents or to release the fund. Otherwise, no one can touch it. Yeah, fair enough. It's, it's just kind of funny to see how we all handle money differently, kind of like how the characters in the movie would. <laughs> <laughs> right, this is a movie podcast. <laughs> Yeah, because um, they actually never went into too much detail on what they would all do once they got the inheritance. I believe Suki said that she'd just leave, much like what Jackie would do. And I don't know what all the other people would have done with their, the inheritance they stole. Spend it all on booze. Yeah, man. Vices. They're pretty fun. In like this post-war occupational country, yeah, I'd spend it on booze. Of course I would. I mean, speaking of sins and like vices, I feel there's like a lot of you know, quote, quote, deadly sins that got brought up, you know, like lust, gluttony, greed, pride. Just like all these characters exhibit a lot of these things, especially lust. That's why half of them died. Like the uncle, right? Like if the uncle did not solicit details of the, the night that Fujiwara spent with his niece, I don't think he would have died because he was asking details about like that night and then Fujiwara was like okay if you want details then give me give me like a cigarette right and that cigarette was embedded with mercury toxin and after smoking it it killed both of them I mean he was doomed before he got in that room they already found him like half naked in the hotel room like there was no way he was leaving that situation alive might as well go out well I was referring to like the uncle oh okay yeah 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 yeah, yeah. oh but I'm saying but I mean the uncle 
I mean, the niece thing was a side thing, but I think he was killing him more so that because he helped her escape, right? Because he wanted the inheritance. Did he ever figure out that Fujiwara was a con man? Good point. I don't... I feel like he didn't, not really. Yeah, because I, I always just... I, at first glance, I was like, oh, he's going to get revenge because he conned him. And then I thought about like, wait, no, I don't know if he knows that. This is just an unrelated torture. Yeah, I think he just got angry that he was the one who freed Hideko, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it would have to be. Cause, oh, yeah, because he left for a week from the yes. state. And that's when they eloped. And a few days later, she's gone. So, yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. So basically, the uncle died of lust, and Fujiwara died of greed. Two deadly sins right there. Yeah, and there's a bit of pride and wrath mixed in there, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely yeah. pride and wrath. I mean, who's, who exhibits what? I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure they got both of them. They, I mean, I feel like if it wasn't for the uncle's pride, you would have been more careful. Yeah, probably. I think the same thing with Fujiwara, because he felt like such a in-control-of-the-moment kind of yeah. con man, where he, like, he didn't anticipate, like, oh, wait, I gave her opium that one time. Oops. Yeah, that was that was kind of sad. Also, uh, Fujiwara, poor guy, still talked to Hideko. Hideko was like, "Oh, this is the plan," and then and it gets double crossed for that. Unlucky, really. <laughs> he played all his cards correctly. I th- oh, maybe not all of them. I mean, most of them. I mean, the only thing he could he could have possibly predicted that the con maid that sh- he hired was going to also double cross him. Literally was somebody naive. This guy made a few crucial mistakes. He could not have possibly predicted that. Yeah, or that they'll plan to double cross him, right? Yeah. Too. I guess it really goes to show how much we like. I mean, the actor and the character itself. So just, we wanted want this guy to win in some way, but he just died at the I end. I think, okay, honestly, okay. Like, all the actions leading up to the end, he was pretty much a scumbag. But I think his acting and charisma really shine. I think that's why we like him so much. Oh, definitely. For the time, if you wanted to survive and you were poor and you didn't have a lot going on, being a con man was definitely the thing to do. I mean, crimes all the way. (laughs) (laughs) Who's to say you're not a con man right now? (sighs) Yeah, I'm not really Raymond's. This whole podcast was a ruse. I just wanted to hang out with you too. Well, uh, I'm actually honored. (laughs) You know, sometimes I do feel that this is a con orchestrated by Brian. Yeah. Oh, what? <laughs> like, we create this whole podcast just to hang out? Yes. Yeah, probably. I mean, it's not bad con. <laughs> so one thing I really like is when they went into the book room and just, like, tossed all the books and stuff and, like, ruined it. It felt good that they were almost, like, cleansing out the corruption of the rich. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it, it just, it felt good. I wish, like, there's some way to cleanse the evil of the world in that way, right? But cathartic moment to the film yes. but like part of me is like damn those are historical pieces of work <laughs> you just destroyed <laughs> them you monster historical collectible erotic fiction you know it's yeah. really interesting because like those are like collectible erotic fiction right but like okay think of it think of it like this okay, okay right now we have like porn hub and stuff right so let's say in a hundred years from now okay when technology has advanced would what we think a porn hub and like something we can buy for ten dollars, like like ten dollar porn pornography film. Would that technically be like I don't know, like to the future generation? That would be like a, a, a amazing collectible. I mean, there's vintage porn. Probably not nowadays if it's digital. But if it was like a magazine, oh baby, you signed me up. <laughs> I'm 
Um, in Vancouver, I don't know if it exists anymore. I haven't been for a few years, but there used to be this um, old arcade, old arcade in downtown, where in the back of the arcade there was like these like peeping tom showrooms. You put in a quarter and it show some vintage porn films. Wow, that's yeah. interesting. So they, I mean, I'm sure they still have viewing rooms to this day, right? Yeah, I'm sure they exist. I guess my point is, it's it's like a different like point of view or different. Okay, what like what they think of something in the past as just very normal, and now because there's not much of it and it's so novelty sense to it, we mm-hmm. think, oh wow, like we, we kind of hype a thing to to them to the people past. It's just a simple like book. Yeah, like a Pokemon card back then. Exactly. Or comic Ray, books. Raymond, thank you for bringing it up. Like, I think the first edition of Charizard or something is it goes for like three hundred fifty k now. That's oh yeah, that's a good price for a piece of cardboard. Yeah, yeah, for a piece of fucking. Like, I say guilty cardboard. as I've got collectible cards in my room. Right. <laughs> but back then it was maybe like what, like ten dollars. Yeah, maybe twenty. Twenty. Yeah. Twenty. It's really this appreciate like the inflated cost of like memorabilia or just like rare vintage things but i do like the fact that it is rare like vans that have stuck with it for so long and yeah has collected them and not just like throwing them away over the years yeah the uncle was a huge fan of porn so he just kept all this going and wanted to share his collection with the people so which is why he copied it right yeah i feel with the digital age we don't have so much as like quote-unquote hard like collectibles right like oh because you cannot re- replicate like something old but with digital it's just bites and you just copy it and there was this whole new fad with the non-fungible tokens the nfts that people were selling i personally don't agree with it but i see the appeal but i i, I don't know i feel like there's something different of actually having something in your hand like i'm not a collector but i do like have a bookshelf of books I have read before because you know I enjoy the book and I like having it as a memoir almost of like who I am. Yeah, it's um I'll just you know divulge a little bit about my personal life for a sec, but I have a collection of a fair number of things like books, comics, uh, trading cards, etc., etc. You name a nerdy thing, I probably own it. Uh, there's like this quality to having this tangible piece of media in your hand that you have like a history with that you can like feel and occupy a physical space with. Reading a book on a Kindle is fine, but something about having that piece of paper in my hand is so much more. Like, something else that's a bit more niche, I suppose, would be listening to music. Like, it's one thing to listen to Spotify for 30 hours and just not really know what to listen to. It's another thing to, like, go all the way to the record store, pick out a record you want, and then put it on the turntable, press play, have all your settings just right, and really appreciate the sound. There's, a, there's an added quality of appreciation to it, and I feel like that's something we're really missing nowadays. I wonder is, like, the equivalent of this movie where the rich people go all the way to this hearing, listen to this erotic reading, and then go buy the fake or copied version of this erotic novel is the equivalent of modern day you going to a record label, oh sorry, record store, buy a CD and come all the way back. Is it just, you know, streaming it on Spotify? I mean, I guess in some really lucrative way. <laughs> You know, it's like very roundabout, right? Yeah, I guess. I, I guess it's kind of like collecting art or collecting like old music. Old music is that? Oh yeah, yeah. they definitely collect like old music. vintage. You would vinyls. not want to know the price of vinyl for like, like original pressing stuff. That's like, like let's say a Michael Jackson vinyl. <laughs> okay, that would be pretty pricey, right? Um, I I personally own the Thriller album on vinyl, so it's not expensive. Original? No, not original. It's a, it's a repress. Okay, we're talking obviously. about the, the original. You know, uh, that's probably gonna be fantastic few like thousands like tens of thousands oh, only thousands <laughs> i mean how much do you expect someone to pay for 
a CD that you can technically replicate. I mean, like, if it was, like, a collector's edition or, it's like, one of a kind, I, I could imagine a lot. I mean, like, they're, I mean, people are spending 250 Yeah, that one I kind of get, but at the same time, no. Yeah, I don't get it. I really don't get it. It's not even a good card anymore. The meta's changed too fast. What would you do with it? But, <laughs> but you know what's interesting is that in the, uh, like, one of the pictures, I, I'm not sure if it is, not, not strangled, but being, like, wrapped around by like a octopus and, and that i think that was that is either the like the picture the, like the photo or painting is the dream of the fisherman's wife like i think that was either inspired by it or, or that was it it made a tribute in it within the movie no that definitely was the dream of the fisherman's wife it is is actually the exact piece in the movie i thought that was like a really interesting and actually very like thematic inclusion in the film for those of you who are unaware, The Fisherman's Wife is this, well, it's like one of the most recognizable examples of Japanese erotic literature to the point where some even call it the impetus of tentacle hentai as a whole. But um, to, for the context, it's this uh, naked Japanese woman with a one octopus sucking her breasts and one octopus much larger performing what appears to be cunnilingus. Nice. Yeah, lucky guy. <laughs> lucky girl. Um, and there is a bit of like, there are these two interpretations. There's like the historical context of this being based on this Japanese folk legend story where this woman goes underwater to receive this jewel from this undersea kingdom and there's this big adventure and at the end she and this octopus, you know, get down and dirty. And, but there's also this other interpretation where it feels like this is like a slimy, almost rape-like scene between a woman and some kind of quote-unquote monster, which is like kind of harkens and has allusions to the film where Hidako is being abused and mistreated by, like, monsters of men, being her uncle and even uh, the Count Fujiwara. Yeah, I would have to say that I'm more aligned with the second interpretation of uh, the dreams of the fisherman's wife just because of all the Japanese meat I've consumed. Um, it just seems something very likely that they would do. Okay, I'm just going to blow your mind. I'm going to blow your mind right now. Apparently, that second interpretation, a lot of people say it's wrong. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's like a Western thing. You know, like when... Westerners were going to Japan and looking at their uh-huh. art. They saw that. I was like, what the hell is that? Yeah, and there was yeah, all yeah. these Western interpretations of this. This is obviously rape. This is like uh-huh. the story of Beauty and the Beast. It's like a, that huge metaphor of a woman being intimate with a monster that she doesn't consent to. Uh-huh. But apparently the historical and accepted Japanese interpretation of that work is this. That is just the legend of the folk story. And that's just how it goes. Or at least as far as I looked into for the research. That just seems like a random like part of a... Of a- of like a folk tale though yeah i think if you read any like historical folk tale folklore they're all pretty random and i think it just comes down to that's just how people used to explain how the world is right we just didn't have the scientific method we didn't really think about how the world came to be so you know like all kind of cultures all kind of religion has different explanation how the world came to be the way it is yeah, like, my biggest gripe with us preparing this episode is, like, I never got the chance to find that legend, because I would love to read it just so I could explain it a bit further, but that's just, I guess that's homework for me. Our homework to further listener. Oh, uh, yeah, tell me if I'm wrong. I probably am. Yeah, so another very big theme that I want to bring up would be the homosexuality that was depicted in the film, uh, especially with the two men just them falling in love with each other, and there were two very distinct scenes, uh, I in the beginning and then at the end where they were making love and how it was shown on film and it was 
you know, it was very well choreographed and it was also very explicit and it was very long too. They definitely put a lot of work into making those two scenes and I have to say it's very progressive of the director to have those two scenes because I, I can totally like imagine how people with less progressive mindsets or someone that is just opposed to the gay movement uh, how it could offend them so I really like that this film is kind of putting a positive spin on it in a way that it's almost promoting awareness. Um, but to counteract that, I feel I felt at least the explicit scenes didn't have to didn't have to be in a movie. They could have had you know just you know made love but no sexual scenes. And I felt in some way it was kind of fan service. Yeah, like I'm um I'm kind of on the fence here because it does seem very excessive and more on gratuitous. But it, it does tie a lot into like how the movie is built up and the themes it wants to tackle. Like um if you if either of you actually noticed, whenever there's homosexual relations between Suki and Lady Hiko, it's always shot very tenderly, very lovingly, really warm and with a lot of passion. But then if you put Lady Hiko with Fujiwara or her uncle or with a man whoever it's always shot very violently it's really angry it's really like flat shots shows this weird thematic difference between like love in some sense versus like this more bitter masculine sexuality that's being forced upon it just like that really works and that's kind of why i'm I'm okay with just how explicit it is but at the same time maybe trim a couple of minutes off that like i'm not complaining but still (laughs) interesting that you guys bring up like i guess my point wasn't exactly about like the lovemaking scene itself but it was just how the way that it was depicting like homosexuality within the film and for a, a korean film to be so i guess a, a gay positive it, it's really like aggressive because i do know that like in korea it's still a very conservative country uh, I, I believe that in 2021 they did a poll about how accepting people were of same-sex marriage. I believe that 38% were in favor and 52% were against. And, you know, these numbers are fairly significant being against gay marriages. I even did some research and I found a a person that went on the streets to do interviews with people about what their thoughts were on gay people and gay marriage and such. And to my surprise, a lot of young people were very accepting, but some of them weren't. Just, just a tiny minority, and some even went on to say how they didn't like it when gay people were openly showing like displays of affection, and uh, the older crowd uh, that were interviewed, you can kind of expect that they were just not about it at all. Uh, one, one lady even said that they understand gay people, but they just don't really accept that or that it's not very natural i think it's one of those things where um life you know people should be more progressive and although i don't want to stereotype age groups it just comes with time right like each generation will be more progressive than the last um so yeah i i get it like when you're older generation you know you might not be able to change your view on certain things but there are people who has like change the views like even very famous people like Arnold Schwarzenegger how, how do you pronounce the name is that Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger. Say, one person say it Arnold Schwarzenegger it, I'm just like am I pronouncing his name correctly it's close enough alright where was I oh yeah like people like Arnold Schwarzenegger where he has came out and say like I was wrong about being against uh, homosexual 
uh, marriages and stuff and homosexuality in a in a whole and I think it does take time for people to come around and I'm sure as us as a generation when we get older there are some things that we might have gripe with yeah like sexuality as a whole has really been uh, shifting in the past honestly like maybe 40 to 50 years or something like it feels like it's very like a male dominated gaze of sexuality and I feel like the film even touches upon it where it feels very male defined I think the count even said at some point like oh I hear the greatest pleasure women can have is when we're being forced on to it by by a man or something and now like with things being more inclusive and more perspectives being brought in different sexualities being more accepted and opened it's just like a huge shift overall and just how sexuality is depicted and viewed and there's this clash that's kind of ending or in the we're the midst of it but it's it's shifting and that's kind of like the thing that i feel like a lot of older generations are having difficulty with or the more stubborn it's like these are the rules and this is how it's always been but just because that's the case doesn't mean it was always right yeah actually speaking of that i think there was a poll recently where there are so many different kinks out there and actually there are some people who like this whole consensually but like role-playing not consent kind of thing like fantasies fantasy rape kind of thing and that's like a pretty common thing and you know i think it's great that people are now more open to trying different things and you know i'm not saying it's for everyone but i think one famous quote by uh perry trudeau it's two adults in a bedroom is not the government's business right yeah it's really nobody's business except for those two people yeah as long as consensual oh yeah of course (laughs) like I think the hard line, at least for me, is if it's not consensual by any one party. Yeah, like, um, just to speak on the talk about, part about kinks, which is a weird transition. Um, remember in the movie where they were had that fantasy of the reading, where there was, like, just whipping and suffocation, and we saw that, kind of? Yeah, like, it was consensual, and it was a kink, but it was very taboo. It was very secret, secret, hush-hush. I mean, it's not so secret now. Like, BDSM is, like, a big thing now. I don't want to continue this creative <laughs> conversation. Why not, Raymond? Is this sexual conversation making you uncomfortable? It's making me hard. Oh. <laughs> Are we keeping that in, or <laughs> I will decide. Uh, That's definitely a bucket list item. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. BDSM? Yeah, bro. Bucket mm-hmm. list item. Uh, I don't know. I feel like... No, but I'm not the one that's getting tied up and whipped. Oh, that's so fun. No, but I, I think the whole point is the role reversal, right? Is it? Yeah, I think BDSM, like, you uh, have, like, a what, the whole dominatrix... Yeah, but you can... Is it, tie is you it, up and whip I thought you. the guy can be dominant. I don't like how you're looking at me for answers right now. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no I, I'm pretty sure, like, the more common trope with BDSM is you have a female-empowered... Figure. I guess I guess you're kind of right because like all the like parodies you see on like TV, it's always a girl with the whip, right? Yeah. Like, a guy tied up on a cross or like an axe or something. Yeah. You could. I could tie you up I right mean, now. I mean, I mean, I mean <laughs> huh, would I be down for that? I mean, maybe if I'm not tied up because that's kind of weird, but. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I I feel like I mean, it's the, weird to me, but again, who am I to judge, right? Yeah, right. Like, like, you know. If it gets you off, it gets you off. I, I guess. Might like it, I might not. Who knows. <laughs> Well, you'll know once you try. <laughs> they say the pain and pleasure nerves are actually very intertwined. I can believe that. I mean, and that's why people get off in, from pain. I mean, pain. that's why people want to do anal, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know if anal is always painful. I mean, at some point, maybe No, no, pleasure. no, I'm saying because you were saying about pain and pleasure nerves, right? I mean, like, anal, it's pretty painful, but it also hits the pleasure nerve. 
Stop looking at me. I, 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 I don't know where I'm going with this, but I don't know. For me, it's like I'd rather be the one that's doing the humiliation to the other person. I just, I'm just not on either side. I just don't want to do either. But you know, like I think you do. For you. me, it's more of a power thing. It's like if I'm I regret what I've started. If I'm humiliating <laughs> the other person, I feel powerful. I don't know. I guess I don't care, but I, I get, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. Like if you had to choose one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Maybe me too, but... I'd just rather not be in that situation. I don't know how to segue back to the film anymore. I don't friends are going to think we're free. So <laughs> I mean, this movie's a lot. I don't know. I don't know. What if, I don't know if I want my friend to listen to this. You could just say, oh, so episode 1, 2, and then 4. Yeah, just skip 3. Just 3 is not a good well, we'll have, we'll have two. I, mean, I mean, if they have access to 1, 2. Anyway, um... I feel one of the other things I learned from the movie is, you know, in no situation you should always be overconfident. Like, you should always stay humble. You know, patience pays off. And if you, you know, lose track of what you're doing, you think you're, oh, I'm so good. Maybe it's time to check on yourself. You know, like, kind of... What, what's the word when you, like... When you rub your chest like this. <laughs> <laughs> when you uh, hold yourself back, like... Constraint. Contain. Yeah, maybe, yeah. So in some situations, sometimes you need to contain yourself, really think about yourself again, or think about your situation again. Yeah, I feel like the uh, one of the main central themes is just, like, how far can manipulation goes before it kind of just backfires, because I feel like everyone here had their own little plan of how to manipulate the other person or all the parties involved, and they, it kind of backfired for everyone in different ways. So it kind of reminds me of the line where people say, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. What? Wait, I don't get that. Yeah, it's like everyone, you know, right before a fight, they say like, oh, you know, I know how I'm going to take the other guy out, whatever, until they get punched in the face. You then, like this? then the fight goes out. Okay, yeah. I get it. It's, so it's, it's kind of like, you know, everybody had a plan. Oh, this is how it's going to all go down. But reality is different, yeah, right? Like, right? Oh, no, when in fact they're in love. What's that board game called? Clue? Monopoly? <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. Let me, let me find it. I want to keep listening to board games until, until you find it. Um, board games about fighting. Um, bingo. Uh, <laughs> bingo. Chess. Uh, um, checkers. Catan. Risk. Monopoly. Uh, Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> Magic the Gathering. Pokemon. Uh, Chang's Chess. Shogi. <laughs> Shogi. Uh, oh, okay. I found it. Oh, damn. Okay, so so this is another board game called Cult Express. Um, I'm not sure if anyone has played it, but basically the idea is everybody has a bunch of cards and you play out how, what your character would do in on the train. And then, you know, you have a plan. And then everyone then, you know, finally reveals the card if the game gets played out. But how the game usually works is everybody got a plan, but then because, you know, plans intersect with each other, then ends up nobody's got a plan and someone gets shot in the face. Yeah, you know, you can only plan so many steps in advance before something wrong happens. Yeah. So, you know, in some way, sometimes, you know, you got to take a step back, you know, how to kind of think on your toe, rethink of, you know, your situation. Because sometimes, you know, your plans goes right out the door real quick. Yeah, I mean, the girls were pretty good on that whole idea. We, we fell in love. Let's create a new plan together. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like Heideko was the one who led the whole thing, though. I mean, she's cold and calculating and manipulative. Of course she was. She's also educated, too. Think about that. A lot of, lot of goes on in that brain of hers. A lot of reading. 
Yeah, it's funny you talk about planning and how these characters had a plan that didn't work out. Um, did you guys know that there was an extended cut to this film? I did not. I did. <laughs> Actually, didn't we watch the extended cut? Though? Did we watch the extended we cut? We did watch the extended cut. And I did not watch the extended cut because I watched it on my own. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I don't know good. what the difference was, though. Uh, Yeah, like, the funny thing is, I don't think there's much of a difference. It's not scenes that were cut, per se. It was more, like, lingering things. Like, you know how, like, a lot of shots tend to linger and, like, take their time to, like, get to where they were going? It's kind of like that. That was a lot cut. And the really funny thing is that uh, the director thinks that the theatrical version, the theatrical cut, is better than the extended cut because it kind of trimmed away all that fat. Like, I think he said that it, it was his preferred version, actually. That's funny. Isn't it usually extended cut the director's cut as well? Uh, no, no. I think I read that the uh, DVD and home sale uh, releases of this yeah. film, it says the... It just says, like, Handmaidens, and then there's the extended cut. It doesn't say the director's cut. I see. Yeah, like, it's one of those things where... I feel like a lot of films, they're really made in editing, because you can film a whole bunch of stuff, but if you can't get it to a coherent state, what was the point? And, like, this is kind of a case where he filmed a lot of stuff, and it all works excellently, but it was just a matter of trimming that fat to really get to the point of what he wants to say or the kind of emotions and effects and concepts he wants to tell about having things stay too long or things get repetitive. Do you know why? Oh, uh, no, no. Like, um, like, just, once again, to develop a bit more about my personal life. Um, so I come from a more creative field, and, like, when you get put on a project and you want to des- design something or make something, you have all these ideas and you have all these assets, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is to show the client or the professor or your audience what you think is most valuable. So it's really about trimming all that work into the best it can be into one piece, not having like 50,000 things to say one thing, but having like a couple of things to say that one thing. I think in a lot of films, like they usually write a lot more or film a lot more, even like plan for a lot more than they actually put on screen or that they develop. Like, if you ever look at the concept art or the like the original script or drafts of film, you can see like these whole pieces of things just missing from the final product because at the end of the day, it didn't matter. It didn't say anything new. It didn't add to what was trying to be said or it didn't do anything more. It was just there. So the fact that there's two cuts, I think it's more so this film works in one cut, but it also works in another cut. And maybe we couldn't decide which one was better, or maybe it's the fact that, like, hey, if you really like that cut, the real, we filmed a bit more things, and if you want to see everything we've gotten filmed, there it is. It's kind of one of those things. Like, the director's cut or extended cut shouldn't make the movie for you, I, unless I haven't it's a very, very unique situation. But generally, it's the, the it final product should be the best it can be, either. regardless of what oh, cut okay. it is. Yeah, okay. I read, though, sometimes the um, extended cut or director's like cuts actually... The preferred like version by some fans. Like, like I'm just thinking, you know, the Snyder's cut. Sort of or just yeah, that's a different it. beast entirely. <laughs> so now, if you want to tell me a story, well, let's say the story is this guy goes to a bar. You can say this guy goes to a bar, or you can say this gentleman, this 20 to 30 year old man of brown hair, black eyes, ragged t-shirt, strolls down the street until he happens upon a bar. He debates with himself for 30 minutes mentally. Maybe he talks to a hobo on the street along the way. Blah 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 blah, and then he gets to a bar. Which is storytelling, though. Oh, thank you. But but you get the idea, right? Like, if you want to say something, you can say it quickly or you can say it slowly. It's just a matter of fact of what details are most important to that story. And for director's cut, I understand there's the whole auteur vision, the whole idea of having to see everything or to get the fully unfiltered take of what the author wants to say. But at the same time, you don't always need that. I don't need to see all that. I just want you to get yeah. to what you want to say. I don't need all that filler material. I don't need all that context if it's not important. I could tell you a story of how I went to the store and I bought an apple, but 
I could omit the part where I parked my car or the part where I decided what I wanted to get dressed this morning. The fact that I was paying by cash or credit, those things aren't essential to what I'm trying to tell you. I went to the grocery store. Okay, yeah, I see what you mean. It, like Some details that are unneeded or does not add yeah. to the actual story you're trying to tell, the narrative, it's... It's redundant, right? It's yeah, just... yeah. Like, I'm not saying that I'm not guilty of liking extended cuts or director's cuts either, because sometimes I'm a fan of the work or I want to find a new way to appreciate this piece of work. But at the end of the day, you should try to do what you want to do the best way you can. And generally, that's a lot of trimming, a lot of editing, and a lot of shorter in general. Sorry, I could get behind that. Yeah. For sure. And, not, and like, the theatrical moves at a wonderful pace. I wouldn't know what else was left out of it, to be honest. I didn't watch the extended cut like you guys did, but did you find anything was too slow or did things drag? Uh, I mean, I don't think anything's dragged, per se, but there were some scenes that were, like, definitely longer than it felt it needed to be. And now that you mentioned it, yeah, probably it would have made sense to watch a theatrical cut because uh, some parts I remember I was like, oh, man, there's a lot of talking, but this... This talking actually didn't matter. Two hours and 40 minutes, that's quite a long movie. Yeah, like, to me, a film should be around two hours to two hours and a half at most. Like, anything more, it feels a bit excessive. Why couldn't you cut that down to tell a more coherent story? Yeah, I, I personally like films that are closer to an hour and a half. Oh, wow. <laughs> but um, that's just personal taste. I always find, like, two and a half hours of movie, they're, like, always, like, by the end and the conclusion, there were some scenes you're like, wait, that... That scene didn't even matter. It didn't add anything to the plot. Yeah, it's like that Chekhov gun situation where you set something up in one act. You would kind of expect to see it play out or at least reference in some way in another act. I'm looking at you, Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but to talk more about like the technicality of how this film was just made, did anyone notice a score or music playing in any scenes? I honestly didn't. I, I think I focused mostly on the dialogue between characters more so than anything. I didn't notice any, but there definitely, there definitely were like a good amount of background music. Really? Because like, as I was, I'm trying to remember the film, I'm like, there had to be music in it, but I can't for the life of me remember anything about it. And whenever I go online to look about like the general consensus, I noticed that a lot of people were loving the score. So, oh, it's really good, but why well, can't I remember anything about it? Yeah, that's weird, right? I, I, I guess maybe we just not tuned to it or we're not paying attention. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's odd because like, I always try to make the conscious effort to like pay attention to the score. It's, it's So is this like a case of the score was so damn good and it fit the scene so well I didn't notice? Or was I just so entranced by the actors and the performances or the story? It's like, or is this the score bad so and I have bad taste? So I don't think the score is bad. Because there's a bad score, you, you notice. Like, it overwhelms the film and then you're like, huh, is this a musical now? <laughs> I think it definitely kind of I think it's one of those things where it's a job well done. Like, it's so well done. Then you won't even notice it. This works. How, rare, mm. how often you call a plumber, right? And, you know, job well done. Yeah, true. Yeah, I just thought it was kind of neat. Like, huh, I can't think of the score. I guess it was really good, though. <laughs> of course, there's some movies, like, I'm thinking more like a, like anime. They have, like, very intricate, like, songs that was just play out for a scene. And I'm like, oh, okay, this fits the mood. But you definitely notice the score. Something like that. <laughs> Keep humming. Can, one. can you give me a music interpretation of this song? Can I get like Sorry, a music interpretation of this movie? Can you get like a beatbox version of that, real quick? Yeah, <laughs> I'll like a full rendition of this movie in. 
I charge by the minute. Well, Jackie, you see, I need that for the editing of this podcast. It's absolutely crucial I have it in like an undistilled, maybe in a flak format. No, no, no. <laughs> mm. Does anyone really talk about specific scenes in the plot? Because I don't really have anything specific. I just kind of summarize like it. There's no like one scene that like imprinted in my head other than the sexual scenes. Oh man, those yeah. sex scenes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, right. It's like it's like a very slow burn. The movie. Yeah. The sexual scenes. It was like it was like <laughs> it was like spiking. Everything else was like pretty flatlined. I mean, I think the only scene that I recall was when um, okay, so the ones the only scene I really remember was when uh, Suki ran up on the hill and then saw. Kiriko and Fujiwara actually getting close together and she got really jealous. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a turning point in the movie where she went from, oh yeah, I'm just here for, to the help the con man to like, okay, I really like Hideko. I I will willing to betray the mission I'm here for just for Hideko, right? And that's that, that was a turning point in the scene. As well as the ending scene, the whole like finger chopping and... Yeah. And everything that's those two are like the most memorable scenes for yeah, me. Yeah, like all the scenes are done ma- like excellently. Like they're all just like consistently the same level of good. Nothing really stands out. Nothing really like catches my eye in like a particularly off-putting or captivating way. I'm like this all makes a lot of sense, but nothing really stood out except for I guess the ending and sex scenes. Uh, another scene that what really stood out in a weird way was the scene that Fujiwari was trying to I think it just like I think it was more the dialogue than anything like um, Raymond said this before it was like Fujiwara was saying oh the greatest pleasure that a woman can feel is when a man is forcing himself upon her like something like that and, and I just thought wow this is really interesting and funny because it's so misogynistic but you know it, it, it stood out and I remembered it I think it made you dislike Fujiwara just enough that when he got murdered, you're like, okay, well, he's a scumbag. Yeah, like, you had this, you know, charming con man, and you just had to ruin it with some rape. Maybe if he was too charming all the way, then we'll feel even worse when he dies, right? Yeah, true, yeah. It just really shows that how this film's, like, point about sexuality, it's, like, it's so male-driven, so male-defined that, like, that's what they think is correct, or if it's not that, it's, like, really depraved and angry. Hashtag, we live in a society. Okay, Joker. <laughs> there was some um, symbolism and concepts that I thought really stood out with the whole film. Uh, one of them was, remember when Tsuki went to where the master was, where all the literature was kept, and she she was trying to like walk up close, but there was a snake statue. He said, like, snake marks the bounds of knowledge. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I thought, I thought that was like really interesting. I tried to dissect the symbolism of it. I did this like in a vacuum. I didn't look online. I just wanted to like see what I could get out of it. So I, like these are some ideas I thought, or I had. Okay, sure, go for it. Yeah, yeah. So you know how like snakes are t- like traditionally defined as like a symbolic element of evil and deception, and by saying like this evil or this deception def- is defining knowledge, it's kind of like this wink to an audience, like hey, there's gonna be like some tricks or like deceit in this movie, like with the whole like plot twists and like these double crosses. But it's also like symbolism for like just how deceitful the master is, like he's forging and like making copies of like all this traditional Japanese art he's a Korean man with this huge facade of like being this traditional Japanese man where he's actually just a huge pervert underneath I just thought that was like, a really interesting thing that could tie to the film or maybe I'm just you know, like, spinning my I wheels and just saying random stuff I mean I actually interpret it differently I thought the snake um, it's like a biblical reference right the snake and Eve where yeah. by you know snake tricking Eve into eating the apple 
got you uh adam and eve like knowledge right and i think that's like kind of like knowledge and maybe like deceitful kind of coming hand in hand like you can't really deceive someone if you have like zero knowledge about something like it's hard to deceive somebody if you have like if they play had all if they have all the cards right like hideko was hard to deceive like there was a scene where uh fujiwara you know came in and tried to go like oh be very nice to hideko try to get her to like him and then she's like no 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 i know what you're up to hmm. like yeah that's pretty interesting. right while you have suki who's like the uneducated naive person who almost got uh crossed right or double crossed but that's the interesting part is that like you think that suki would be the more i guess i want to say like in- intellectual but she would be more i guess um street smart because she lived in the outside world more whereas he could from childhood till like uh, how however old she was in the movie right you think that you because you think the other way around i don't know i don't know if being street smart i mean they always have this thing about like oh being street smart is better than book smart but i don't know i feel like you kind of need a little bit of both, right? You need to be both street smart and book smart to be quote-unquote smart, right? Yeah, you do need it, but like it just seems that like in the movie, Hideko was both street smart and book smart while like Suki was just kind of being passed around, like not knowing whatever was happening, at least at the beginning. I think Hideko definitely exemplifies somebody who understands the situation and her being around all these rich people, all these rich men. Like, I think she, in some way, understands how they tick. And because of that, she's able to, like, trick them. Yeah, but wouldn't that be kind of, like, her own interpersonal smarts, like, the street smarts? Yeah, I'm not saying, like, she's just only book smart. I'm just saying she kind of needed both, right? Right, fair, fair, fair. Uh, one other thing I thought was, like, really interesting in terms of, like, symbolism was, like, the glove that Hideko always wore. If you ever noticed, like, in almost every scene she wears it, except in when she's in scenes, in more intimate scenes with uh, Suki. Nice. Well, you know. <laughs> hard to do all that stuff with just a glove on, you know? I mean, I don't I don't know if there's any symbolism around a glove. I've, I, f- I thought it was just kind of like part of the costume, part of Victorian era. I mean, it's, I it's definitely part of that, but like it's also like you can't touch her and she can't be touched. It's kind of like that cold, cold like persona she had. Like the whole unloving kind of feeling she has. It's something like, like that. Okay, I I did not get that symbolism. I, mean, I just thought it was like a costume thing. But yeah, no, I I think that is a reasonable interpretation of that. Yeah, it's funny too because um I don't think it's said in the film, but in the book this was adapted from whatever it's called. I forget. Fingersmith. That's the uh, one. Yeah. Um. One they 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 kind of explain why University the equivalent character wears that. It's, uh, like, it's because where... the book she manages are so old, she has to treat them with care, so she has to wear a glove when she flips the pages. And I was like, huh, that kind of makes sense in the movie, too, but I don't think they ever talked about it. Interesting thing is, you go to a rare books library, you cannot physically go and touch the book, but a librarian comes in with gloves, and they'll flip the pages for you. Huh. I don't feel about that. I mean, mean, it makes sense. Like, you're going to destroy the book, right? Where am I? (laughs) Yeah, I've always wanted to go to... I don't know, I, I think I never got access. Or at least I never tried I think it's for the public, but it's one of those things, like, why? I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Like, I've seen pictures of it. I mean, maybe I have, like, a free weekend, you know? I just want to go look at some rare books, whatever that means. 
interestingly, I feel like rare books in some way kind of relate to the whole, like, collectible ideas, right? And kind of goes back, like, even people in modern day that do value collectibles in some way, like modern art, modern book, like old books. I mean, that's what a museum is, right? Oh, shit. Yeah, like, <laughs> you're right. Yeah, that's just, they're just describing a museum. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You just blew my mind, good yeah, sir. You think about it, like, collectors are just curators of their own little museums. Oh, oh, wait, are you going to start a museum then? Yeah, come look at my big Yu-Gi-Oh collection. <laughs> In terms of a CBC, ABC perspective, um, I'm not sure I got too much out of it. I I mean, there is not much that applies to modern day. Um, all I could say is like, you know, watch out for your deadly sins, watch out. Watch out for you know being overconfident, and definitely don't consume so much porn. It's really funny you say not to consume too much porn because I know that like porn not only descends through women, but also porn induced erectile dysfunction is actually like a thing. The what? Porn induced erectile dysfunction. It's I heard thing. of that. Yeah, like yeah. how you got off so much from watching porn, you can't get off other than watching porn now. Excuse me while I make a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that, like, um, physical punishment, it's pretty common within Asian households. Uh, especially, I don't know, let's say that you do something, like, dumb, and your parents get mad. They might pull out, like, a stick or something to whip your hand, or they might just tell you to stand against a wall for, like, an hour. You know, I feel like that's very commonplace for a lot of Asian kids growing up. Yeah, like, when... um. Young Hideko was hit on the hand several times. Like, yeah, that, that sounds... That feels kind of true to life a little bit. But then after, everything after that, I was like, okay, that's a little bit more extreme than I got. Yeah, there's some relatable scenes, but I definitely feel like she was abused, which is a little different from... I mean, some people say, like, you know, physical punishment is abuse in itself, but I used to not believe in physical punishment, but then the more I think about it, I'm like, you know, I turned out okay, I think. Yeah, you would think that. <laughs> Are you sure you're not angry deep down inside? I don't know. I'm, I'm sure we were all physically punished as a kid, right? Do, oh. do you feel angry deep down inside? Oh, all the time. Oh, <laughs> When I was a kid, I was pretty angry. I'm still angry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, just to echo everyone's opinions here, I, I have no real frame of reference. I'm also ethnically Chinese, but I've grown up in Canada my entire life, so I don't have much of a attachment to like the cultural portrayals of Japanese and Korean culture, especially from the 1930s, so I can't really resonate with any of that. Um, I'm, sure, I'm, like, I'm sure this film touches upon a lot of, like, themes and things that would resonate with a lot of people, like people of the LGBTQ plus community, uh, women who have been in horrible situations. I'm sure everyone can, like, walk away with something from this film, like something, allusion to their own life, but to me, it's just mostly a good film where a lot of themes I enjoy. Yeah, fantastic film. Yeah. But yeah, um, I don't think we have anything else to add, right guys? Yep. I'm all out of juice. Alright, cool then. Well, that's all the time we have tonight. Um, so make sure to follow us at Real Rice Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as your favorite podcasting apps and www.realricepodcast.ca. See you next time. Good night, guys. <laughs>